I'm Bill Lawrence, and this is my Big Bag of Onions. They come from Maine to California, broken hearts and parts unknown. And through this night we'll share a lover On that dark radio I got so many beats on Hands pressed cold against the phone See all the stars If I would say tonight, let's have something to eat, have dinner tonight, what would be options to do that? And probably you can up, come up with, hey, let's uh, buy some pizza, go to a restaurant, cook at home, all kind of cool ideas. But I believe that very few of you would raise their hand and say, hey, let's go the, to the highway close by, uh, see if we can pick up some dead animals on the side of the road and prepare ourselves a crispy dinner. That's a disturbing thought. But here's the funny thing, for many people in the world, this would be a perfectly normal response. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, so what it shows is that the box in which we think is actually very, very small. And um, if you take a look, if you take a closer look at your industry or professional field, you also think inside a very small box.
Nuclear power generation using thorium is one of the greatest unrecognized technologies that can radically recalibrate and remedy our dependence on carbon fuels and uranium for power generation. Most people aren't aware that nuclear power plants can operate with a very abundant, cheap, stable mineral like thorium. Thorium reactor byproducts cannot be converted to weapons technologies and produce very little waste radioactive material. Yet thorium nuclear power is hardly mentioned in the media or in the corridors of political power because of existing entrenched corporate, military and investment interests. It seems to me that a shared global initiative to switch to safe, clean thorium nuclear power could simultaneously reduce global carbon emissions, environmental damage and human exploitation, diffuse the geopolitical conflicts caused by carbon-based fuel industries, reduce the proliferation of nuclear weapons and increase access to cheap electricity worldwide. This can offer a technological bridge to a long-term future of 100% safe, renewable energy technology. Well, I lost an eye in Mexico Lost two teeth where I don't know People see me coming and they move to the other side of the road I robbed a liquor store too Made myself at home a few times Borrowed myself a car when I needed it I got me a shack at the bottom of the road Fixing cars and giving toes Spend all 
money on the lottery When I win the lottery Gonna buy all the girls of my block Color TV and a bottle of French perfume When I win the lottery Gonna donate half my money to the city So they have to name a street or a school or a park after me When I win the lottery Like Mr. Red, White, and Blue down the road But I never called myself a hero For killing unknown communists Now I can walk into any old bar And find a fight without looking too hard But I never killed someone I don't know Just cause someone told me to And when I win the lottery Gonna buy the house next to As Luo Yang, a producer and former film star, walks through what appears to be 1880s Shanghai, the smokestacks of Linyi, a grimy city some 600 kilometers from China's glitzy business metropolis, are visible across the river. She has rebuilt the historic city for her film Merchant of Shanghai, based on the life of Silas Hardoon, a real estate tycoon in this industrial center in Shandong province. It felt like too much work to CGI the whole thing, Miss Law explains. Fifteen construction companies worked day and night for a year to build the Bund, Shanghai's waterfront, complete with a cathedral, cobblestone streets and 19th century street lamps. The project is backed by Relativity Media, a Hollywood studio. The economics made sense, partly because Miss Law got a good deal from the city government 
Like many other ambitious municipalities in China, Linyi, a dreary third-tier city, is trying to put itself on the map. It hopes to boost tourism and entertain locals by diversifying into cultural activities. After the movie wraps, developers will rent out the picturesque buildings to restaurants, shops and hotels and build a theme park nearby. A new highway will bring in the customers. I was 25 and a junior diplomat, six months into my first full posting as a political analyst in the British Embassy in Mexico City, when there was a huge earthquake that shook the world's largest city like a jelly. It was Thursday, 19th September 1985, a little after seven in the morning. I was in the shower at the time, and my house shook and creaked for a minute or so. 
More than 5,000 people of the city's 16 million inhabitants died. Thousands more were injured. Five million people were left without electricity or drinking water for weeks. Tens of thousands of buildings were destroyed. The airport and main roads were closed. The telephone exchange and lines were down. This was before mobile phones. Schools and hospitals ground to a standstill. The Mexican government's response was feeble and sluggish. It was a shocking and surreal time. You're listening to My Big Bag of Onions.
When the England team fly to the World Cup, an ancient ritual will start to unfold, perfected over England's previous failures to win the World Cup away from home. It follows this pattern. Phase 1. Pre-tournament. Certainty that England will win the World Cup. Phase 2. During the tournament, England meet a former wartime enemy. Phase 3. The English conclude that the game turned on one freakish piece of bad luck that could happen only to them. Phase 4. Moreover, everyone else cheated. Phase 5. England are knocked out without getting anywhere near lifting the cup. Phase 6. The day after elimination, normal life resumes. Phase 7. A scapegoat is found. Phase 8. England enter the next World Cup thinking they will win it. Within my emotional dance My emotional dance My emotional dance With you The night we met began a living since the day that we fell in love The sky above is blue and suddenly turns bright That's my emotional dance with you So alive, though sometimes miss some come I don't mind at all to give you a peace to my heart Now I've learned to live in such a way Within my emotional Show 
my emotional bent with you. observing and making conclusions about ourselves and our environment. Right or wrong, the conclusions we made affected our identity. As adults, we will most want to lie about how psychologically painful realities experienced as children affected who we are today. Perhaps you were raised in a single parent home in which you were neglected by your father. You learned that something was wrong with you. You weren't smart enough, attractive enough, athletic enough. You concluded that to make people love you, you needed to be perfect. As an adult, when someone points out your imperfections, you feel tremendous anxiety, but deny where it comes from. Perhaps you felt ugly as a child because you were teased for your appearance. You learned to eat in response to emotional pain. As an adult, you struggle to maintain a stable weight because your eating has very little to do with hunger. Perhaps you watched your parents fight. You learned to avoid conflict. You're listening to my big bag of onions. Well, I saw you at the opening Somebody's hand was off your dress You were showing off everything Except your finesse Thought that I Thought that I was over you
all I've ever really known uh, I don't know what life is like you know without the internet without being constantly connected without you know an email inbox I do remember a time before Twitter but it's really hazy and uh, and so I, I, I also had this desire to get some stuff done I, I, I wanted to do some personal study some reading I had some writing projects that I was putting off and I figured if I quit the internet, which is using all of my time, I would have unlimited free time to, uh, to accomplish the things that I, I, I desired to accomplish. And uh, so, I quit the, <laughs> so I quit the internet. And the, the question that I was kind of asking um, beyond my, just my personal goals was, how does the internet use me and how do I use the internet? And it's, it's you know, 
At what point are my decisions and my goals dictating my behavior on the internet? And, and what point are the, 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 the apps and the, the people and the processes and just how the internet is, the medium itself, how is that dictating my behavior and how is that changing my behavior?
Nothing kills enthusiasm like official approval, as the fate of the national language in the Republic of Ireland shows. There, people often say, Irish was beaten out of us by the English and then beaten back into us by our Catholic teachers. A few years ago, a young television reporter, Manhan McGann, toured Ireland speaking nothing but Irish. Although he had nice surprises, like a surreal chat about contraceptives with a Donegal chemist who couldn't recall some vital anatomical terms, in his native Dublin he mostly met blank stares and concluded that, in the capital at least, the language was virtually dead.
If I was dictator for a day, I'd want to use that time to try and encourage people to think more about globalization and migration. So I would suggest that all goods need to be labeled with all the components of the, in those goods, indicating that they come from different countries. And that people that don't believe in globalization should not be allowed to consume any product or engage with any person that came from another country. What would that mean? It would mean that people had no mobile phones, they had no vehicles, uh, they had no music. They also would not have uh, food, and uh, except very basic local food perhaps, and of course they wouldn't be able to enjoy any services. They wouldn't be able to go to hospital, they wouldn't be able to use medical service, they wouldn't use pharmaceutical services. They would be in an autarkic situation. I think this would demonstrate that we need each other. We need to be able to appreciate that globalization offers us the potential for diversity to escape poverty and to achieve great progress. You're listening to My Big Bag of Onions.
recognized the roles that were placed on me very early. One persistent concept that I observed existing in our language, in our media, was that women are not only supposed to have children, they are supposed to want to. This existed everywhere. It existed in the ways that adults spoke to me. When they posed questions in the context of when, when you get married, when you have kids. And these future musings were always presented to me like part of this American dream, but it always felt to me like someone else's dream. You see, a value that I have always understood about myself was that I never wanted children. And as a kid, when I would try to explain this, this disconnect between their roles and my values, they often laughed in the way that adults do at the absurdities of children. And they tell me knowingly, you'll change your mind. And people have been saying things like that to me my whole life. Otherwise polite conversation can turn intrusive fast. Does your husband know? <laughs> do your parents know? Don't you want a family? Don't you want to leave anything behind? Nothing to 
Don't comment on how it's plated like a pagoda or a Zen garden. Don't detail the 39 steps it took to make it. Don't start comparing it to the meal you had at El Bouli. And don't complain about the new chef while alternately giving me his culinary CV. I don't want to hear it. I just want to eat it. I love food as much as the next person. I like food the way Homer likes his donuts. But a food snob, I am not. You'll never find me asking whether my Copper River salmon was gill-netted and bled and dressed on sight. I'll never lift a fiddlehead fern and wax rhapsodic about hunting the Zen Mai in East Asia during a trip with Anthony Bourdain. I'll fork that fern and put it where it belongs, my belly. Don't put nettle pasta on a pedestal. Put it in your pie hole. After all, it's food. You're supposed to eat it, not dissect it. Join me again soon for another big bag of onions.